morning, guys. I'm struck by how your show this week is just one example after another of an empire in decline. We have an 80-year-old president mumbling his way through a speech, a former president being arrested on a preposterous charge. Meanwhile, cross-dressers parade on the Capitol steps for Trans Awareness Day, as if we're not all aware to the point of numb. I imagine these scenes played out in ancient Rome, but they didn't have the advantage of Twitter to broadcast their decline to the world. <laughs> well, and they didn't have Twitter and social networking to perpetuate the nonsense either. And it grows those bubbles, and it it grows those false narratives, and individuals who typically would sort of see something and maybe not have an issue with it and think, I don't know about that. They get their bad ideas and their bad takes bolstered by other individuals who have those bad ideas and bad takes. And suddenly they all think that they're good ideas and they're good takes here to make sense of it all to set everything straight, not to put any pressure on state representative and friend of the show, Walter Hudson. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. I'm uh, I'm doing well. I'm I'm not at the Capitol. I'm not heading to the Capitol, so it's a good day. How dare you leave for Easter? We need you now more than ever. How dare you? <laughs> hey, I wanted to get your thoughts on. Um, I'm sure you. I'm sure you have them, but uh, of course, it didn't make, and it should have, and it didn't. The local media didn't pick up on it. Alpha News uh, covered it. Uh, we talked about it on the show, but on that trans day of visibility and that event that took place inside the Capitol Rotunda, um, it wasn't that I was it wasn't that I was surprised to see, you know, a a fairly well known within that community online influencer in drag dressing around and even, you know, on top of the star that's roped off. But the individuals around them applauding and cheering it and the children that were brought in from the audience. And I, I just, I, I look at it and go, you know, how is this not making news and why isn't there more outrage? But it, I mean, this falls in line with the continued commentary that you and I discuss every single week, but um, it was just, it was a very sad display and that's an understatement. Well, I would say stay tuned. I mean, there's, this is not something that's going to go unanswered. Um, within the legislature, there, there are going to be questions asked, and they're going to be asked in a very public manner regarding how this is allowed to take place. Good. Um, and, and also, I think this really stands in contrast to some other conversations that have been having recently, um, whether it's on podcasts or on Twitter or whatever the case may be. This is tension within the Republican Party uh, between the idea that we ought to be attacking these issues more directly and emphatically and the idea that we ought to be engaged in some sort of, you know, pseudoscientific, poll-tested, focus groups uh, messaging that is somehow going to magically return us to normalcy. And um, I think this incident stands as a pretty good refutation of the latter idea. Um, we didn't get, in the course of two decades, we didn't get from 2008 where Barack Obama, as the Democratic nominee for President of the United States, was campaigning on traditional marriage. We didn't get from there to today, where you have a drag queen with a beard uh, doing a strip dance on the seals in the middle of the rotunda of the Minnesota Capitol, um, because the Democrats focus-tested their ideas, <laughs> focus-grouped their ideas. That, that's not how we got here. We got here because they had a perverse but 
intense sense of moral conviction. They believed that they were right, and they would not take no for an answer. Um, and that continues to this day. I see it every single day that I go down to the Capitol in the glaring eyes of the opposition, uh, just insistent that everything they believe be uh, affirmed and conceded that you take the knee and bow in fealty to their worldview or you're a fill in the blank. You know, they're going to they're gonna call you a bunch of different names and say what you are because you refuse to give over your perception of reality to them. Um, and I think the takeaway from that is when you're, when you're dealing it, we talk, we use this term culture war. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's a metaphor. I think we really are in a war of a sort. Um, not a violent war, not a war that's where, that, that properly ought to uh, become hot, but it is certainly a cold culture war. And the, the thing that makes it, that distinguishes war from peace is that in a war, anything goes. Like the, the, your objective in a war is not to convince your opponent, your rival, your enemy, um, that you're right and they're wrong. Your objective is to destroy their capacity to do you harm, to neutralize them as a threat. That's how the left looks at us. And our problem on the right is that there's still a lot of us who are trying to treat this as though it's some sort of loyal opposition peacetime argument with folks who we can get along with. Um, and look, are there, are there Democrats who... You get them. You get them in a private moment. Uh, you get them over coffee or over a beer. Uh, they can be reasoned with, and they recognize some of the absurdity and things that are going on. Absolutely, we have something that we can build a new normal from. Um, but before we can get to that point, this crap that we're seeing from the fringe, radical, and dominant elements of the Democrat Party needs to be utterly and completely defeated and neutralized as a threat to the rest of our culture. Talking with uh, State Representative Walter Hudson, and I agree with you, and it because it is, it's a different kind of war. You know, it's not being waged on a traditional battlefield. It's being waged within the legislature, individuals like yourself and others, um, speaking out and against and doing what you can, limited in majority power, uh, to thwart much of what's being pushed through. It's being waged online. It's being waged on Twitter and Twitter and on, and on Facebook. And I think there's a lot of people that, you know, they understand it. And even if they haven't identified it themselves within their own minds that it's a war, they still want sort of the similar engagement that you would see in your more typical battlefield war. They want instant reaction coming from the right and, it's just not possible in a lot of ways. And I hear from a lot of people. We've talked about this. We've had phone calls. And A.K. Kamara yesterday mentioned it a bit. We had a call yesterday of, you know, why aren't more GOPers going and speaking out about this and making their voices heard? And I guess I, I always kind of question, okay, when what avenue do you want that to happen? There are plenty of people that are doing this online. You know, the legislature and the members of the GOP and the legislature can only do so much. And also, these things take time. And so you mentioned a moment ago that what took place last week in the rotunda with the drag queen performance, you know, isn't going to just go unanswered. But things just don't instantly don't instantly occur. We have to engage in this in this war in a different way than we would traditional wars. And 
for me, it's ultimately looking towards the next election and beginning to put your mind around how we're going to get people out to um, out to vote. So that's an overly complicated little rant by me without really a question attached to it, except to say, Walter Hudson, that I agree with you on that front. <laughs> well, and look, I listened to AJ um, or AK yesterday, and I, I, I agree with the sentiment. Like, I understand that frustration. I, I think it's if people are frustrated because they feel like they're not having their voice echoed, um, by folks with influence such as myself, then they're right. Like it doesn't matter whether or not it doesn't matter sure. whether or not I think I've said it enough, or whether or not I think I've made the case effectively. Um, if it's not being perceived that we're out there speaking loudly and proudly enough um, in defense of the real and the normal, then we need to do a better job. And I, I think you're going to see that in the coming week. You know, the timing of this thing happening just before we go on Easter break and now we're, you know, we're going to be gone for a week and then coming back and digging into these omnibus bills and, and what have you. Um, it definitely puts a, a damper into the leverage we might otherwise have to have a, a broader platform to talk about this. But I guarantee you we are going to circle back to it and, and things are going to be um, dragged out into the light on this. We talked about this a little bit uh, last week, and um, when you uh, joined us in studio uh, from Alpha News, new mandates could send districts into bankruptcy, according to a superintendent. Minnesota's one-sided government is on track to drive many school districts off a fiscal cliff. Stillwater Superintendent Dr. Michael Funk said as much last week at a school board meeting. He says a lot of folks had high hopes that the unified the united government, excuse me, in place, we'd get some things done in the legislature this year. Unfortunately, I think this is one of the potentially most damaging sessions I've seen since I've been a superintendent. According to Funk, a survey was sent out to school districts statewide, eliciting responses from 120 districts that were asked to share the potential financial impact of legislation being considered in St. Paul. What I'm showing you today are statewide averages on what these unfunded mandates will cost our school systems and drive many of them, most of them, probably all of them, into statutory operating debt or bankruptcy. I thought that we were funding schools to the nth degree in this legislative session. So what am I missing here, Walter Hudson? Well, I'll tell you, this is going to be, I think, I suspect, the singular most important, electorally important issue going into 2024. And that is the fact that you're going to have Tim Walls and the Democrats going around bragging that they're providing more funding to public education than has ever been provided before. And that is going to be a factual talking point. What is also factual is that the net result of that funding on top of all of their additional mandates is that school districts operationally are going to be worse off than they have ever been. Um, and that's the irony. How do you... How, how can you possibly give an organization more money and it be less effective at being able to operate? <laughs> the Democrats have found a way, and it's called unfunded mandates. It's called telling people what they can do with the money that you're giving them rather than letting them apply their own judgment to their local circumstances to make informed choices. And it's all predicated upon the idea that people in St. Paul, the activists in the metro, know the best way that a school district ought to be run out in St. Michael Albertville um, or up out state, anywhere within the state lines of Minnesota, you, they, you need a bureaucrat, you need a politician, you need a metro liberal to tell you how to run your school district. Um, and we're going to see the results. It's going to be uh, 
schools are going to get the, the money they've been asking for, at least some of it. But they're it's not they're not going to be able to do what they need to do with it because the Democrats are dictating every aspect of how that money is spent. And really, this is something that's manifesting more broadly in terms of all these omnibus bills. We're seeing that the final outcome of the legislative session is starting to come into focus. And to me, the big takeaway is the Democrats made too many insane, fantastical promises to way too many people, and they're not able to deliver on them all, even with a $17.5 billion surplus. And so what that translates to is we got all these testifiers coming last week talking about all these omnibus bills, and to a person, they're, they're holding their hat in their hand and saying, thank you, sir, for giving me a little bit of money, but it's not nearly enough to get the job done. And that's because we're trying to do too many jobs spread across too many interest groups. We need to have this thing called priorities, where we decide what it is that state government is actually going to focus on and then do our best in those areas and tell everybody else, sorry, there's, no, there's nothing for you because we got to take care of what matters. We got to take care of education. We got to take care of public safety. We got to take care of transportation, real transportation, roads, bridges, lanes, not trains to the loop. We got to be serious about this. What you're seeing right now is deeply unserious and cynically political governance under the Democrats. It's time for a change. We need sustainable stewardship. Well, and one more thing with this. I mean, this seems to be what we're talking about as it relates to the education funding. Um, but also when you consider, and I'm looking at a piece here, and kind of a surprising piece for what it's worth out of the Star Tribune, Minnesota Democrats consider tax and fee increases. The proposed cost to taxpayers come as the state has this massive $17.5 billion budget surplus, but Democrats continue to tout this, oh, that's mostly one-time money. Mike Howard, the DFL out of Richfield, says we're not going to solve our housing crisis with one-time Resources And so, again, we've got this $17.5 billion budget, but they are considering $2 billion in tax and fee increases. And it seems to me it's a similar mentality to what they're doing within the education system. Am I correct in that? 100%. I mean, the bottom line is they have zero consideration for where any of this money comes from. Um, they, I mean, you, you pick your analogy, drunken sailors, uh, kids in a candy store. There is no restraint upon how much they're willing to spend and no consideration of where the money comes from in the first place. So, indeed, you're going to see $17.5 billion surplus soaked up instantly. They're going to raise taxes by $2 billion. They're increasing the state budget by 40%. Meanwhile, the state economic forecast tells us that we can expect revenues to remain flat going forward. And that's assuming that everybody stays, right? Like that the current trajectory continues. In reality, people who have the means to leave, companies, individuals, high-income earners, producers, the people who actually provide all this revenue that the Democrats are just recklessly spending, they can decide to go to Wisconsin, Iowa, South Dakota, North Dakota, Florida, Texas, anywhere but Minnesota, and they will. And so what this, what this is directing us towards or putting us on the path towards is going from $17.5 billion surplus to a almost certain deficit, probably within one biennium. Um, and then they're going to be making the argument that we can't cut anything, we need to raise taxes even more, as we have net negative migration, fewer and fewer people living in the state of Minnesota, fewer. And also the demographic shift of the, what, what constitutes our population. Because again, the people who are capable of earning, the people who are actually providing all of these funds, all of this revenue, they're going to leave 
and into the state are going to be welcomed and invited folks who are looking for housing and child care and to have everything paid for for them to be taken care of from the cradle to grave. This is not sustainable. When, when you're inviting people in to take and the people who give are leaving, it's just simple math and time. We know where it goes. And it's not just the school districts that are going to be bankrupt. It's going to be the state. Walter Hudson, we have one talkback question for you, and then I will uh, let you go this morning. Hey, gentlemen. Uh, question for Walter Hudson uh, regarding the governor's temporary residence for $17,000. I know that there was an amendment passed. It seemed pretty stupid by the GOP to offer something for $2,500, or I think it was $2,500. Just wondering if there's anything else that's going to happen with that, because that's pretty stupid. I actually have more of that story uh, coming up, but what are your thoughts on the uh, the Democrats were scoffing at the suggestion of $2,500 a month in the wake of the $17,000 monthly payment for the governor's temporary residence? I mean, it's a, it's a really obvious lost opportunity on the part of Governor Walls and the Democrats. I mean, why would you, just for, in terms of optics, um, to rent a lakeside mansion for the governor to stay in while the residence is being renovated, as opposed to making a big public thing? I mean, this, we're, we're trying to do them a favor, right? Like, they could message about the, their stewardship of taxpayer dollars and also present Governor Walls as being relatable, being one of us, being one of the people, if they took that 2500 which 2500 ain't nothing to balk yet, right? No. Um, take that and go find something that's relatively modest, uh, living in a community where he's actually, you know, and then you can have the moments of him, like, you know, I don't know if he's got a dog or whatever, but walking the dog <laughs> around the neighborhood, talking to folks, being a normal guy, and it's a huge opportunity missed. I don't know why they didn't want to do it. Walter Hudson, uh, enjoy your uh, time away. We look forward to uh, you returning, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again next week, my friend. Appreciate it.